Welcome to the Inside Angle podcast. This is your host, Dr. Gordon Moore, and with me today is Dr. Jagi Jagannathan, who is an expert in many things and a broad thinker, and I think really a Renaissance man in terms of thinking about information and healthcare and how it comes together. And today, we're going to have a conversation based on a talk he gave recently that looks into how we think about understanding the motivations of healthcare, monitoring strategies that can improve results and the care delivery. And I want to dive into that with him and hear what it is he spoke about recently. Welcome. Thanks, Gordon. I appreciate you talking with me again. So tell me, uh, what was the talk you gave recently? And uh, what was the context of that? I had given a general talk on AI in healthcare at our tech forum, and um, the moderator said, how about a follow-on talk? And I scratched my head and I said, it'd be interesting to see how we could take care of patients in their home setting. And the motivation uh, goes something like this, and this was echoed by others as well. If you land up in a hospital, it is a failure of ambulatory care. If you land up in the ambulatory care, it's a failure of home care. And if your home care is not good, it's a failure of community care. So I was wrestling with this whole notion. And then I said, okay, what is the best way to take care of patients at their home? Obviously, that is going to be the most cost-effective way of taking care of a patient, which will drive the overall cost down as well as drive the satisfaction for the patients. So that was the genesis, and, and then I dived deep into it and uh, looked at what drives it. What is the data that you need to drive this process forward, and what is the care delivery process that can actually be impactful in taking care of the patients at home? So let's take as a starting point that we understand the motivations behind this and that it's a it's a net good thing to take care of people in the home. And you said that one of the first things is to consider what data would be useful to do that. So why don't we start there? I look at it and I, I see three broad categories of data uh, that have a major impact on this whole effort. The first category of data is the data that you collect about the patient at the hospital's and the ambulatory clinics, basically what is recorded in the EHR. And this is the trove of data which is currently being used uh, for what is generally referred to as population management strategies. And the way they use it is they use it for, uh, they look at the diagnostic codes and the chronic conditions and they risk stratify the population and assign different resources. So you assign more resources to take care of the higher risk population, the ones which are more sick. So that is one trove of data. Another trove of data is what I would broadly label it as environmental data. And environmental data is many things. It could be climatic data, uh, the level of air pollution, uh, the status of your water, is the water polluted or not, uh, do you live near a coal fire plants, etc. And then there is a set of data which have been in the news fairly extensively recently is the, the social determinants of health. Do the people have access to good food, uh, good health services, access to primary care? Uh, is the place riddled with crime or violence? Is there good employment in this environment? Uh, what is the health literacy, high school graduation? So there is a numerous types of data which are geographically based, but they impact the health status of the population who live in that kind of a bubble or environment. 
And then there is this data which was streaming in from uh, any time there is an infectious outbreak, the emergency department has access to those kinds of things. And you want to swoop in and take preventive action because there is an emerging problem. Another source of environmental data is social media. There is a lot of information through social media about particularly when it comes to mental health and the like. So this is the second trove of data which is underutilized or not utilized at the moment to address the patients or the population needs. And the third trove of data, and this is a very rich source of data which is coming into play at the moment, is the data from the home itself. There are variables which a person can wear from head to toe. Uh, and there is a lot of information coming in through this wearable data, as well as from different things in the house, uh, like your toaster, your fridge. What does the fridge say about what you are eating? And these are all just coming down the pike and suddenly they're not being used at the moment. So I look at the data that is available for providing a rich picture of, of the context in which a person lives, breathes, works. So that's the context I'm looking at as the data troves. And, you know, I, I hear about Apple and, and other companies and obviously, you know, huge number of healthcare startups that are out there developing devices that capture streaming data that go up to a cloud and become useful. Is anybody actually looking to see that these data are meaningful and that we can actually improve lives? Because I, I have the sense that there's just a fire hose of data coming at me as a doctor, but I think a lot of it is is spurious and unimportant, and it's hard for me to parse the meaning and value of these things. In fact, uh, you hit the nail on the head. There is a variety of studies being initiated as well as reported on uh, based on Apple devices. Uh, Stanford Medicine just reported uh, a big study involving uh, more than 400,000 patients whom they managed to recruit in a period of eight months, which is incredible, on the hot data reported by Apple Watches. So uh, all of these people, they were basically wearing Apple Watches and uh, anytime they get an alert on irregular beats or AFib, they were notified. And about a half a percent of these people were notified and then there was a follow-on study and about 30% of them were judged to actually have genuinely an AFib. So this is kind of tipping the iceberg uh, as to what is possible. But the authors of this study note that the fact that they noticed AFib in, in a 35-year-old, they don't really don't know what to do with the data at the moment because normally the way you treat an AFib is giving blood thinners, but you don't want to willy-nilly give blood thinners to all kinds of people. So so herein lies the problem. I mean, it is actually new data that is coming in and physicians and others don't have the science to back up as to what exactly to do with this thing. But that's the future way. And in fact, Apple actually uh, released three new studies, one on how well the hearing is impacted based on the noise level of the environment. So they're continuously monitoring the hearing. Uh, women's health is the other area. And of course, activity monitoring to figure out how it translates to good health outcomes. So, I mean, it's just not Apple, the Fitbit and the others. They're they all in this space and they're all uh, working to improve the population health, so to speak. Yeah, one one note of caution I want to throw in there, and I you know, apologize for being a little bit of a wet blanket with this, but there's a rich history in healthcare of finding a new way to identify something going on and then realizing over time that that early identification 
doesn't actually lead to improved outcomes. All it does is scare a lot of people, create a lot of cost, and leave a lot of damage in its wake. And, you know, some examples are early detection of lung cancer with chest x-rays, you know, in the past that has had no impact on survival rates, uh, longevity, but a lot of people got a lot of x-rays. And, you know, the, the kinds of things that we do when we discover a new way of seeing something then has to go through very careful studies to answer questions like, does early detection improve outcomes? There's a whole framework for uh, these sort of screening healthy people that the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force puts out to say, really, you, you need to clear seven different hurdles before we can say this is a valid and useful test. And there are very few of them that actually clear those hurdles. There are a lot of tests that have been ditched over time because they actually cause more harm than good. So that's my concern about some of these. When I think about the number of people with AFib, how many of those would actually have a complication from taking warfarin as a blood thinner? That's not a negligible risk for people. Absolutely. And uh, uh, we are talking about AFib, but uh, when you talk about genetic screening, that releases a whole new can of worms. I mean, you're at risk for X, Y, Z and uh, a million other things. And uh, if you don't know what you would do once you get the test results, is it good to have the test or not have the test? So this is going to be the dilemma for a lot of people. And the research has to be done. And all the seven hurdles which you talked about, I don't know what those hurdles are, but it really makes sense to go at it systematically, but there is no substitute for research. And I think what you're seeing is the availability of this data, and now they're looking at how can you systematically go about to improve the population health. And one of the things you mentioned that is really interesting to me is the ability of Apple to enroll 400,000 people in a study in a very short period of time. That's just orders of magnitude greater and faster than population studies in the past, and my guess is at a much lower cost than the typical enrollment. So that's that's fascinating, and maybe opens the door to accelerating research in a way that can be very valuable. Yeah, I mean, they've reduced the cost of uh, enrolling to almost nothing. You just download an app, and this particular study is basically a virtual study. So it's a completely new way of doing studies. It comes with its own problems, but uh, but it's an interesting new approach. Um, it's a brave new world. So now we have a lot of startups developing devices. We have large companies weighing in like Apple, and they're being thoughtful and doing research about what do they find when they capture these data, and what's the crossover from the data to actual health impact for people. So that's that's good. Where do we go with that? What do we do? This started with a discussion of how do you care for people in their home? I would like to highlight a particular study which uh, just came out this week. Uh, this is in North Carolina. It turned out that one county in North Carolina had the highest healthcare utilization in whole of U.S. And researchers dived in to figure out what the hell is going on. And they found out that for the entire county, there are four physicians taking care of the entire population. And whenever somebody falls sick in this community, they did the only thing feasible for them, which is land up in the emergency department by calling an ambulance. So you can imagine the ambulance is the Uber for this population to take them to emergency department to take care of whatever problems they had. And uh, these researchers obviously went through this problem and uh, it's a heavily Medicaid population. They basically said telehealth is the way to address this population. Make healthcare accessible for physicians is not going to cut it. Uh, so make the access available 
through televisits and telehealth, particularly access to specialists and the like. So uh, telehealth is being approved by Medicaid, Medicare, and a lot of health plans around the U.S. now pretty much everyone is supporting the notion of televisits. So it's not just for the Medicaid population, uh, but for also more affluent population who can just visit the doctor from an app, from their work or from their home. And that's one major role I see for taking care of almost 60-70% uh, of common ailments that people face could be handled without a visit to their clinic or even a setting ED visit of some kind. What you describe in North Carolina, I haven't read the study, but I have to imagine that the four physicians is probably too few for the population in that county. So, you know, not knowing if that's true or not, let's posit that it is. And therefore, the only way to deal with surges and demands is to say, go to the ED, which is a very expensive way of addressing something which could be like an upper respiratory infection or a rash or medication reaction. And so because it may be difficult to attract more physicians to that locale, telehealth is a logical way of adding resources without forcing physicians to move to places they might not want to live. Exactly. Uh, this is the classic social determinants of health, right? Access to primary care. Uh, what is your access to primary care? And if you don't have access to primary care, what do you do? You're left with very little options. Um, so you land up in ED. That's one of the things we need to guard against. And um, certainly that is one of the primary ways in which you can take care of the people at home. And uh, uh, there are other ways, but that's the major one which is going to have a significant impact on the cost of being able to take care of the patients. Well, when I think about telehealth, though, it's it's really just digitizing the face-to-face -face interaction so that I don't have to be physically face-to-face. -face. But there are other ways I'm thinking of beginning to automate interactions. So what other tools are out there? Let me at least uh, rephrase. Telehealth is video conference call. Uh, that's one thing. But uh, you can in incorporate additional devices to provide more rich interaction. Certainly the camera can uh, zoom in with uh, any dermatological conditions or uh, any kind of a rash or anything like that. They could probably remotely view. And uh, there are tools out there which may not be available in homes, but uh, if the televisit is facilitated, through some intermediary location, uh, like Walmart or something like that, it's possible that they will have remote stethoscopes. Uh, of course, uh, you can take the temperatures and the like. So there is a category of tools and devices which will make the televisits richer. But if you go beyond telehealth, then there is a, a variety of therapeutic vehicles available with devices. And these will fall under the classification of wellness coach or um, uh, you can have a personal coach assigned to you, which is not necessarily a telehealth visit with your physician, but it might be a visit with a wellness coach who will pace you through different things that you're doing. Uh, it could be um, a, a virtual assistant giving you guidance, helping you explaining something. So there is a range of tools out there which are available for everybody. And some of the variables are incredible. I didn't know that there was a sock, uh, uh, smart socks, which will tell you about your blood circulation and warn you to go talk to your physician because there is not enough blood circulation in your socks. The number of devices which are coming here, head to toe, uh, it's just incredible. Wow. What about, um, what about wellness? 
there's a significant number of wellness apps, right? I mean, uh, of course, everybody who has an Apple Watch knows about all these tracking of your number of steps, what's your uh, heart rate is throughout the day. And I mean, I wear one and it'll, it'll tell me, hey, you haven't met your exercise goal today. You haven't met your calorie workout goal for today. And uh, so those things help you keep moving. And there are things which track your sleep. And the number of sleep-related apps out there are just unreal. Uh, they'll monitor your sleep. They'll tell you how well you're sleeping. And I, I saw this crazy variable uh, where it'll actually monitor your EEG. And whenever you're in your REM sleep, which is when you're supposed to be dreaming, it'll flash light. And they claim that it uh, makes you have more vivid dreams. I don't know if that's true or not. <laughs> But that was interesting. <laughs> but uh, the more practical aspect of monitoring your REM sleep is uh, you can set your alarm and say, okay, wake me up within this period. You give a time, okay, let's say 6 o'clock, and you give a 20-minute band. And in that 20-minute band or 30-minute band, uh, it'll figure out when is the time you are least in deep sleep. You're not in deep sleep, and you're in a REM sleep, and then it'll wake you up at that time. So you wake up when you're not in your deep sleep. You're woken up when you're in your REM sleep or in a, a light sleep. Now I'm split because I was going to say that, you know, you mentioned that there's so many of these apps. Part of the problem I have is trying to figure out which one are just noise and which one are useful. And there's also a long history of wellness apps that have fallen by the side. One of the problems in a lot of the studies is there's a selection bias. People who choose to use these apps tend to be active and, and relatively healthy anyway. And so when you compare them to the people who don't use them, they look better, but that's just who they were, not necessarily because of the app. So one of those selection bias issues that has to be managed if we need to study it. Absolutely. And this was actually mentioned in the study uh, with the Apple Watch. They were basically saying that the mean income of people who have these Apple Watches are something like 80K and uh, a mean income of an Android device is in the 60K range. And so uh, when you start doing these kinds of studies, uh, it's going to put you in a different population than uh, the ones which involve the social determinants of health and the Medicaid population. So you may need a completely different set of strategies there than uh, the ones who go around wearing Apple Watches. Yeah, exactly. And then when you mentioned the uh, don't wake me up during the deep sleep, boy, that sounds attractive. <laughs> <laughs> that's just an awful feeling when I, the alarm goes off. I believe that's a useful app. I'm tempted to try it myself. Yeah. <laughs> All of a sudden, I've been poo-pooing them for a long time, and now I'm thinking, hey, that's not a bad idea. So that, so then what, what do you do with all this information? How do you put together a healthcare delivery in a way that takes advantage of this? Okay, so where does the AI fit into this, all of these things? Uh, first off the bat, I mentioned that we have three troves of data and the only data that we currently have is the thing which is recorded in the EHR. Then the next throw of data, which I think people are trying to attack, is the SDOH data, particularly because there is a lot of Medicaid uh, population out there, and there is a genuine desire to bring them into a population health value-based care environment and uh, track it. Uh, we now have some ICD-10 codes related to uh, the social determinants of health. And once they start coding those kinds of things, when these people show up in uh, clinics and hospitals, perhaps you'll have a better picture of their social status and the social determinants of health recorded in the EHR and might form the basis. But there are other ways of getting this data. 
and some companies have been successful in accessing this data. Certainly, the social services have a record of who they are taking care of. And just by virtually combining the social services and the physician services in one environment, in one data set, you have access to the data, which is much richer than before. And a number of places that's been happening. For instance, PA has announced that they will try to uh, coordinate these two uh, physician services and social services in some cohesive way. And that's good for the Medicaid population of that state. PA as in Pennsylvania. Yes. yes. Yeah, gotcha. So that's one trove of data. And uh, the variable data can flow back into an EHR. And in a limited way, some of it's already flowing in. People who opt to provide the data, how many steps they take in a day, or whatever, that, that whole slew of that data set can go into an EHR. And some of it is going through uh, Google APIs and Apple APIs. Uh, and they are all very aggressively promoting their APIs. I saw some study somewhere that Epic has managed to collect a bunch of this information. So it's still at an information stage and it's not something actionable until you start standardizing the data format and running analytics on it and use that to do some prediction uh, about the health status of the individual and determine whether you can actually make any actionable intervention. So we are still in the phase of data collection at the moment. Sporadically, some of these are coming in. Uh, but it's still, it's not something any physician would want to see. It has to be fed into some machine learning algorithms to figure out what in the world is happening. So we are still in the data collection phase. That makes sense to me. And as I think about some of the things that we have the capacity now to be able to say from lots of well-validated studies, we can see that people with very high risk, and so you had earlier mentioned that risk stratification is one of the things that, that's important in terms of understanding data. So, so using current, even administrative data sets, we can say this group of people exhibit attributes of extraordinary risk of being hospitalized or ending up in the emergency department or having bad outcomes. Therefore, we can think about high-touch interventions, telehealth with care manager outreach and things that you mentioned before. So these tools become an enabling strategy. And that's I think there are good studies that validate that approach. And, and in the meantime, we can then step back and say, as we have the capacity to risk-adjust populations and look at outcomes like the rate at which people end up hospitalized for potentially preventable reasons, like, you know, you, you had mentioned pollution. So we can see when there's more pollution, do we see more children with asthma being admitted to the emergency department or the hospital? But we can begin to see if there's an app or if there's an approach that sets up alerts, does it change that rate? Does it actually have an impact? Because what we want is better outcomes, but we can't we have to be careful not just to add complexity and cost to an overly costly system, an overly complex system that we have now. And that's a good point. Sometimes the preventive strategies that you're looking at may not necessarily be cost effective in the short term, but if it helps the population to be healthier and happier, that is an end goal in itself, and it's going to improve their work productivity, your employers are going to be happier. So the payer may not necessarily see some of the benefits sometime in the short run, but in the long run, it's going to make a difference. In fact, I remember just seeing a study on that front as well. Does focusing on population health really, does it really help? And I think the answer is yes, but it takes some time. Juggy, thank you so much for your time today. Another good conversation, and I look forward to more. Thank you. Enjoyed it. 
For Inside Angle, this is Gordon Moore. You can find more podcast episodes at www.3mhisinsideangle.com.